0: world 191. You're listening to the Podcast Network. My name is Cameron Riley, and tonight my guest is Mr. John Alsop. John is an Aussie, he's coming to us from uh, somewhere deep inside of New South Wales. John is a software engineer, speaker, writer, surf lifesaver with a long-standing interest in css web design development and all other sorts of geeky things he's one of the founders and organizers of a web design and development conference known as web directions it happens all over the world he runs a software company he writes a blog he runs these companies called west western civilization or west civ as it's known for short welcome to the show john Alsop. g'day karen how you doing, mate? I'm doing very
1: well on this rather balmy evening. Are you down in Victoria? Are you down in Melbourne?
0: I am indeed. All right. What's it been like down there? Perfect as always, mate. Is
1: it? Oh, <laughs> yes. Goes without saying. Goes without saying. Got your carty with you, mate,
0: or you? I do. Yeah. Got a <laughs> very car- good. I, I I love Melbourne weather, mate, because it's never boring. I grew up, in, grew up yeah. in Queensland where it's just hot every day.
1: Hot and sticky all the time, isn't That's it? That's right.
0: Now listen, uh, you've got a great blog called Dog or Hire, and uh, I actually went and, and uh, read your blog post that talks about why the name, and it's a Simpsons reference, right? You want to tell everyone the story because it's kind of cute.
1: All right, okay. It's, it's. I used to. I used to live in Bondi. I now live kind of just a bit south of Sydney in a little sleepy little sea change town. Um, but when I lived in Bondi, obviously it's crawling with backpackers. This goes back a few years, and and it was just when things like internet cafes were taking off. And there was one on the corner of my street, and, and I'd travelled in the past. I lived overseas for quite a long time, and I'd walk past, particularly with my business partner uh, Maxine Sharon, and and we were amused that in Bondi on these beautiful days, you would have these, this place full of thirty or forty people in these little kind of cubicles tapping away using. Google or Yahoo or whatever they probably Hotmail back then, so you know they were like kind of just in these little almost what would you call it you know kind of uh, cages almost, and it reminded me of a scene in the episode of Simpsons where Fat Tony is sprung supplying uh, rat milk to the uh, to the school there, and uh, Mayor Quimby comes in and he said. Tony you promised me dog or hire so so there's this <laughs> idea of that and there was this scene of, of rats <laughs> these rats in cages and it's what it reminded me of these people you know when I traveled probably 10 years before that in the early 90s there was you know there was no such thing as email or anything like that you couldn't even ring your family you just sent them an aerogram and be done with it so anyway I don't and I guess the idea was that I work and I have worked for years by myself. Like in my own bedroom or I swear in an office in my house, and I kind of, I guess, felt a bit like those those guys in the little cubicle. So that's that's sort of the connection between do, dog or hire and, and the, the internet cafes and how I worked and things like that.
0: You a big fan of The Simpsons?
1: Oh, just too much, I think. I, I don't get to watch it all that often, but my entire family, we've six kids in the family, and it's probably... You know, every reference we have to one another involves a Simpsons quote or something like that. It's, it's well, well, kind of pathetic. You've you got know. six kids. Well, I don't have six kids. I have the, my, my brothers and sisters. I have oh. one kid. Oh, right. That'll do right. me. I don't know how my parents did it. Yeah, no, no. Oh. No, I got one kid. Yeah. No, there were their five brothers
0: and sisters. Good Catholic family? Yeah. 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 Um, now, can you believe The Simpsons has, as of this year, been running for 20 years? To I know. Like, f- that
1: Bart would be my age.
0: <laughs> well, just about. He'd be, what, 30? That's
1: it's just 20 years is amazing, isn't
0: it? It's mind-boggling that they've it's been It's still out
1: watchable. They haven't jumped the shark. I don't reckon
0: anyway. No, well, Ted McGinley's not in it. hasn't uh, appeared in it yet. I think that's the, uh, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's as, the sign, isn't it? When Ted McGinley become, joins the cast of the show is usually when it jumps a shark. Yeah, yeah. There's a few pointers. Anyway, anyway. So um, I, uh, you know, I've heard your name mentioned round the traps, obviously, for quite a few years, and uh, but only had the opportunity of seeing you talk a couple of months ago when we were both scheduled at uh, the same Web 2.0 conference on in Sydney, and uh, you did a great job. You, you had the oh, uh, you. responsibility of uh, opening the session for a bunch of people. You asked for. A, show of hands how many people felt they were comfortable with what web 2.0 is about and there were very few hands and you had the tough job of sort of describing what web 2.0 is all about to a bunch of people who are completely unfamiliar with it and I thought you did a terrific job but for the sake now the audience of this show is probably very familiar with what web 2.0 is all about but why don't you just take us through for a couple of minutes your perspective on web 2.0 and what it's all about.
1: All right. Well, I'll begin with my one kind of fame, which is I, I can find no earlier reference than my own semi-public use of the term Web 2.0 about three or four months before O'Reilly's uh, claimed use of it in a, in a meeting. Now, that's not for a moment to say that I think that was entirely uh, kind of coincidental. And, and even at the time, and, and I actually have a blog post about it, I thought the term was pretty poor, and I proposed in a slightly different way I proposed the idea that, and I've been very heavily involved in web design and development, particularly standards-based stuff. And and at that time, IE6 was going to be it for the, you know, in perpetuity and, you know, there was going to be no new versions of IE except for ones for Vista. So at the time, there's a lot of depression, I think, amongst people in the web standards world. And my proposal was that we should brand the concept of developing for web standards with a cool, sexy name. And I suggested something like Web 2.0 or something surely better than that. So even at the time, I didn't like the term. Now, it's actually coincidental. and has nothing at all to do with what Web 2.0 turned out to be, except that my proposal was the idea that Web 2.0 was about a platform, the web as a platform, not a whole lot of disparate bits and pieces, but a consistent consolidated platform. So you had underlying everything, obviously, everything carried over HTTP, and then you had these different kind of plug-in technologies like CSS and SVG and XHTML and so on. So I guess what I was focusing on, I think what some people certainly focus on, is the technology aspect which builds a platform. I happen not to like the term, and I've happened to never really have liked the term, but it's useful and it's one that's stuck, so we, we should all live with it. I kind of think the Web 2.0 is just the web, uh, and sometimes I really kind of want people just to call it the web, but I, I, that's not to say that I don't think something quite significant has happened over the last three or four years, and I, and I certainly think that O'Reilly's I, I put their finger on something profound that has changed. So to me, probably... The thing that interests me most about it all is a return to the idea of what uh, Richard McManus calls the read write web, or, you know, what you might consider a web of conversation, uh, a multicasting web, a web which is generated by relationships between people of of relative equality rather than, uh, you know, having broadcasters who just stream out you know, whatever content, and, and having these sort of p- passive rat-like recipients of sitting in their little cubicles receiving, whether it be radio programs or, or TV or whatever happens to be. Now, again, it's long and rambling, uh, but to me, I guess the key of it all is it's it's about conversation and Web 2.0, you know, and all the things that we see, you know, whether it be generated user-generated contents or, or you know, comments on blogs and blogging or RSS, all of these things feed back, I think, into conversations between relative equal rather than this sort of passive recipients of streamed content, broadcasted content. So if you you,
0: you had to summarise it in uh, one blast, one sentence, to uh, somebody who is completely clueless about it, how would you summarise it?
1: The web as a medium for communication between people rather than simply the distribution of... Published data. Okay. That's not, yeah, it's not particularly well said, but that's my general idea. It's about conversation, about bringing people together and sharing. You know, at a relative level of equality, rather than like I said, having you know these big broadcasters which you know reminds me of watching Channel Nine or something. You know, like NBC, ABC, whatever it happens to be. But, yeah.
0: but wasn't, you know, the, the, the early days of the web about that as well? I mean... Absolutely. And, and yep. I mean, we were all putting up websites... So- well, not we all, but a lot of us were putting up websites in the mid to late 90s that were broadcasting our ideas. Now, they were harder to put up and we couldn't get comments on them and all that kind of stuff like we can on a blog. But how, how is Web 2.0 different from that?
1: Well, I, th- I think the model there, despite all of our desires, was essentially all of us setting ourselves up as broadcasters, and, and we may have only had a small audience, but the model was essentially the same. The technologies weren't there to essentially encourage sort of the participation of the audience, uh, and now, in many ways, the audience creates the content. I mean, a great example I love is Last FM which I'm sure a lot of your listeners will be familiar with, which is effectively listens to what you are listening to and aggregates your tastes and, and your hit lists and then aggregates that across all the listeners on Last.fm. So, in fact, the the actually passive action of, of listening to music is creating this extraordinarily interesting rich data set and essentially kind of um, content. So, I mean, those sorts of things were well, probably technically feasible, but there wasn't the mentality, there wasn't this philosophy of building sites that were harvesting people's behaviour, that were, were harvesting people's participation to generate these interesting kind of crowd behaviours and, and, and capture those and then to present them to other people. So I think it's not so much a matter of the technology, which, which in many ways hasn't changed a lot. I think what's fundamentally changed is how we philosophically perceive what websites are doing and you know even people like the Herald and the City Morning Herald you know Fairfax Papers have sort of got a nod in the direction of it I mean even you know if you watch the Today Show in, in the morning they'll say well if you see something you know send us uh, the photo from your um, you know your mobile phone no. so there's even a nod in the direction from the biggest broadcasters in the land of, of a kind of user participation and you know, user generated content I, I think that that's probably a bit more cynical than what a lot of other people are doing it at a much more kind of grassroots level but but it, it's certainly a philosophy that you know has I think permeated throughout all you know me, the, the, all the media really
0: we've actually got a uh, G'day world group up on last FM oh, excellent so I'll uh, check it out yeah it's there's not many people in it I think there's two of us
1: go, go and join up, up. Get out there, people. <laughs> Last Last.fm just it excites me as much as I mean, the idea of it is just, I think, wonderful, and I, th- I use it as an example in that presentation, and, I, and it seemed to resonate with people. It seemed to be a great example that people kind of, the light seemed to be going on around the room, and it was a room full of kind of people involved more tr- in traditional broadcast and, 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 and content development, music and film and television, so... And yet, they seem to really respond positively to the idea. I really saw a lot of people kind of start getting it. So that's probably one to point people in the direction of as a kind of prototype for the sorts of services I think uh, that will be very exciting in the in the in the near future.
0: In Australia, outside of you know the big news sites, uh, and in fact, the guy I had on the show uh, uh, earlier today. Uh, uh um his name escapes me oh God. we'll edit that in later. It's been a long day. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um Evan Maloney from Poland. Um Evan's actually a blogger on news <laughs> site. Alright. Um and he you know, he's been doing that for a couple of months. They actually pay him to uh, write a blog for them. But outside of you know some of the news sites having you know blogs or saying yes yeah, send us a photo, have you seen any other good examples in Australia of traditional companies using Web two uh, ideas, functionality, concepts?
1: To tell the truth, not. Particularly, I think um, uh, there's certainly I, I know there's some interesting sort of startups. People like remember the milk as yeah, uh, one of them. But, but in terms of the, the traditional media companies, I think they're sort of paying lip service to it. And 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 I've sort of talked to people off the record who work in some of these very big ones, and they know that that the the kind of decision makers don't really get it. Um, but I mean, one example is, is the Herald's full of. Uh, it's full of blogs. And they're not really blogs because, as far as I'm concerned, a blog is not a mechanism for generating, you know, comments. It's not that's, uh, that's something that emerges from a good blog. A community emerges from it. But if you read, for example, a lot of the Herald blogs, they're simply these, you know, inf- you know invitations to have flame wars, which, which I think just doesn't get it at all. So if anything, I think that the traditional media, to the extent that I, I, I guess I'm not much of a participant in it, But to the extent that I am and that I notice these things, none of it particularly excites me. And I guess that's one of the reasons why I'm not a participant in the traditional media in Australia because I don't particularly want to just simply receive other people's kind of data and and information and opinion. And there's nothing that really entices me to participate in their communication.
0: Can I just agree with you there and make a point that a journalist writing a column on a news organisation's website, as far as I'm concerned, is not a goddamn blog. It's the journalist's column. But well, they, yeah, they have these journos, yeah. you know, going, oh, now the journal is a blog. Yeah. No, the journal is just writing. A second column that maybe isn't as carefully thought out or as edited. That's right. It's got
1: all the spelling spelling mistakes we all have. Really,
0: it's (laughs) it's a column. It's not a blog, people.
1: I agree. And then uh, there's that part. And then you have all these other ones like Sam in the City, which even well, I don't go that far. But everyone I ever talk to is like, "How much do you hate this?" Because it's it's clearly something that's there to generate a bit of storm and draw. So for me, it does that, but not because of its concept. It's simply because of what it sets out to do. And the, the, the Herald's actually got about half a dozen of those. And even if you look at the sports one, I mean, the Herald Sports Writing, you know, I'm a bit of a sports fan, I'm a bit of a cricket fan. Um, Herald Sports Writing is, is some of the best you'll read anywhere. I mean, Peter Roebuck's a tremendous writer, you know, they, they have, they have great writers, um, for certainly the cricket, which I read a lot of. But if you look at their, the sort of the tonk, again, uh, it's almost like this, part of the DNA, they're right, well, when we're writing a a blog post, because, you know, Henry Lawson, he's a smart guy, but when he writes a blog post, all of a sudden it's it's clearly just trying to shake the tree for people to fight over whether or not Steve Warwick is a selfish batsman or, you know, like, again, to my mind, that is not what blogs are about. They're not a mechanism for generating comments and flame wars. They're, to my mind anyway, a a conversation between the, the, the sort of blogger and their community, whether it's two people or 200 million people, who participate in that, in in the conversation, which centres around the blog and its comments and trackbacks and things like that. And and that's what I don't think they remotely get. Right? And yet, ironically, they get hundreds and hundreds of uh, comments. So, you know, they'd probably say, well, this is great because people are commenting, they're looking at advertising, they're, you know, they're coming back day in, day out. So maybe I'm the idiot <laughs> for, for thinking that, that they're doing something wrong, but I still don't think it's a blog.
0: I guess it depends on what their incentive is. I mean, I'm sure most of the new sites are, are really just experimenting, but the other angle of it is they're trying to figure out models for retaining user stickiness on their sites and, and you know driving new sources for traffic to their sites so they can sell more ads. So... Something that's yeah, controversial and has a it. lot of people come on and, and you know come back to the page a couple of times a day is going to enable them to throw some ads in there. I, I I doubt that the majority of them are really genuinely interested in a lot of community discussion and debate.
1: That's I wouldn't disagree with that observation. I think you know I think you're about right, and that's what the traditional media largely does. I mean, man bites dog is a news story, and dog bites man isn't. You know, like they, they seek out the controversial and the, the unusual and so on. For the really, and they exist to entertain us, and we pay them, you know, by walking their ads for doing so. so you know. So that's the traditional media, and I guess, the, you know, at the moment, I think a lot of people are involved in the sort of web two stuff probably there's probably a degree of kind of startup excitement so they don't necessarily have to think too much about their revenue streams that they can they can kind of think about all the cool stuff But maybe in six months or 12 months or 18 months they're going to have to think more well geez we've got to pay our investors back or we've got to pay our mortgage or you know my husband wants me to you know <laughs> to, to buy a nice meal or something so perhaps the, perhaps this is a really early day for a lot of us and we can afford to be idealistic and maybe that'll you know maybe that'll run out of steam at some point down the track when um, people stop being willing in... Yes, people aren't as willing to invest in our exciting startup ideas. Not that I've ever had anyone willing to invest in my startup exciting ideas, but anyway. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I know the feeling. Man Bites yes. Dog, by the way, is a really great 1992 black-and-white Belgian film. You ever seen it?
1: Uh, was that the one with the serial killer? Yes. And they followed him around? Yes. I, it's, to tell the truth, that is one of the very few films that I simply couldn't sit through more than a minute or two of. Not because I thought it was a bad film, it's just I, I wasn't going... I, I just couldn't physically do what I felt. It was so well done that... that you were already complicit in the whole premise of. It. I remember walking straight out of the room. I, I just couldn't watch it. I, but, you know, that probably testifies to its strength rather than anything else.
0: I felt like I had to go have a shower after I saw
1: yeah, it. Oh, <laughs> that was, yeah, oh. I, I can remember sitting, playing Galaga on my, um, <laughs> uh, or one of those games on the, what's that, you know, the emulator thing? Yeah, yeah. And I remember doing that, like, just trying to get it out of my head,
0: you know. <laughs> <laughs> Just as soon as you've mentioned that, I've got to uh, do this. Uh, da, 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 da. I'm going to play. your theme I'm going to play the, right, the ringtone on my mobile phone at the moment.
1: Oh no, is it Galaga or something? It is. <laughs> That's one of those. They all come down in a formation. You get to make try and shoot them all and get bonus points. <laughs>
0: Uh, yeah, yeah. Until your age now. The amount of time I uh, spent getting that on my mobile phone is just ridiculous. It, did you
1: uh, sample it off the emulator, or how did you get
0: it Oh, no, I finally found it online, but it took me okay. ages to find it online. Mm. But I do have... I've got the emulator running on my Xbox, and I absolutely love it. I spend more time oh. playing that than anything else, except Scarface uh, on Xbox at the moment, which is, oh, yeah. is the game to die for. Now, um... Uh, tell us about Web Directions, mate. Tell us what uh, Web Directions Conference is all about, because I've uh, never been invited to speak at one, and I'm, sli-
1: might have to change I'm slightly offended,
0: but then when no, that's all right. when I look into it, it's fairly geeky, so I don't know that I could geek up to that uh, that amount.
1: Well, I guess the thing is, it really did start as a design and development conference. It started it was, uh Jeffrey Zeldman, actually, most people probably know his name as sort of the godfather of web standards, once described it as the first web standards conference anywhere in the world, which is very flattering. Um, we've kept trying to get him down to our conference and he keeps having babies and all sorts of stuff like that. So um, that's been a minor disappointment, but he's been a great supporter. And so it really started as, as a conference focused strongly on design and development, but really at the technical level. And it's, we've had three conferences now. And we're about to have our fourth in Vancouver in early February. So we've got listeners from Fe- uh, anywhere in North America, particularly Vancouver. We'll be there from February 6 to 10. includes a couple of days skiing and Whistler, if you want to come along for that as well. Why, uh, Microsoft are, why Vancouver? Because yeah, of skiing at Whistler. <laughs> well, actually, <laughs> one, one of the reasons is the, the point about the conference is a very community-focused, very bottom-up. You know, like, there are conferences in San Francisco and there are conferences in London and the big centres. But it's the smaller centres that, you know, which are often... I mean, in Australia, we do a lot of great web design and web development uh, and a lot of very, very famous people in the, in the sort of sphere of designers and developers are here. But, you know, we haven't got such a big market or anything like that. So one of the reasons why we sort of got together and did it was to sort of think, well, all these great people are here. Let's just do it and see what happens. And we brought out... Uh, Dave Shea, who started CSS in Zen Garden, and Douglas Bowman, who probably kick-started the use of CSS in, prof- you know, in, in major sites with the, his use of it at Wide Magazine, uh, back in about 2002. So we brought, and, and Joe Clark, who, you know, is accessibility guru. So we started with that focus of being very much about hands-on design and development. But as it's grown, we've, we've introduced more kind of conceptual stuff. You know, community stuff, uh, um, you know, business building and, and things along those lines. And, and that's very popular as well. So it's a matter of balancing your kind of core technical stuff with all these other aspects because if you work in the web world, I think you can't just be a specialist. I think at the very least you have to be familiar with business models, or you know, um, and those sort of things. If you're a technical person, or, or I think as a business manager or whatever person, you really have to understand at least the implications and the basics of the technology as well. So that's where we're heading. I think we might be able to find a place for for you, Mr. Riley. Um, hopefully, we'll be on. Well, the, we're planning to be on, but at this stage, it'll be the end of September uh, this year. And we might even go to more, more than one city, but we'll just have to see about that.
0: You're not going to fly me to Vancouver?
1: No. Not this time, but maybe soon. <laughs> um, in fact, the only people who are flying to Vancouver are ourselves. We've got most of the speakers are coming from North America and one or two from Europe. Uh, we, and again, what we try to do is we try to be, really, in a sense, quite localised. You know, we get the best speakers we can from around the world, but a lot of the focus is on... On local stuff, and why it's actually in Vancouver is that two people I, I admire greatly, are fantastic designers and developers, Dave Shea, who I mentioned from CSS in Garden, and one of the real accessibility gurus in the world, uh, Derek Featherstone, who's spoken at our conference. They're Canadian, are keen to put on a conference, and we just said why not? So we thought Vancouver this time of year there aren't a lot of conferences on, we could do some skiing, and we've done that, and we've got probably going to be having about a hundred people up for two days at Whistler skiing. Uh, Even got a very big software company going to throw a couple of parties up there, um, which we'll announce very shortly. So we're trying to kind of combine the personal and the business and the technical, you know, bring people together, uh, get them talking. And we've had people from our conference come to our conferences and get jobs, uh, employ people, uh, meet their life partners, meet tremendous friends. So we've had, you know, these tremendous outcomes That come from just bringing a whole lot of people together, chucking them in a a couple of rooms, throw some parties, get some great speakers, just mix it all around, and see what comes out of it. And we've had a lot of fun. It's a lot of hard work, uh, but we very much hope we might be able to get you along uh, in September, and we'll we'll take it from there. So that's in a nutshell, a very big nutshell. Web directions.
0: Yeah, get yourself a free Zoom, eh?
1: (laughs) No, we did give away a few iPods. But uh, not with the big
0: software company sponsoring it. You
1: won't be no, it that's right. No. So maybe that, we'll see what happens with the Zoom. If they want to give us a Zoom, well, I'll give it a go.
0: Now, speaking of the iPod, uh, yeah. uh, you wrote a, an open letter on your blog to Apple saying, uh, "iPhone too much."
1: Yeah, isn't that an embarrassment when people like, just wankers like me, turn up and t- try and tell a $20 trillion company who do amazing things how to run their business? Because let's face it, you know, I've sold a bit of software and they've sold trillions of world changing bits of technology. So, arrogant bastard that I am. All, yeah, look, I. So, blogs are all about writing Well, stuff. exactly. <laughs> well, I, the, I mean. Uh, it was heartfelt. I actually feel... That they, Steve Jobs used an analogy when he said... He quoted um, the very famous uh, ice hockey player, um, who everyone knows, and who I've forgotten,
0: um, Wayne Gretzky. Surf to where the puck's going. That's
1: right. And he quoted that. And he says, you know, I don't think about where the puck is. I go to where the puck's going. And then and then he said, well, that's what we do at Apple. I thought, well, GSM is not where the puck's going. You know, it seems to me that's already around the world we're, we're moved beyond that we've got 3G networks and things like that and and we're moving away from that to you know like smart you know because the whole idea of those networks is, is that the edge devices are dumb and and, uh, and and the network's got all the smarts in it whereas if you move towards a sort of more Wi-Fi type of approach they put all the smarts in the edge devices and, and, and then see what happens and, and so I, I was just disappointed they didn't quickly just you know rather than worry about this GSM and tying it up with a particular provider and all that which strikes me as very 20th century they didn't come out with a game changing thing which worked with you know ubiquitous Wi-Fi because you know let's face it increasingly cities around the world Sydney's got a plan for 2008 San Francisco will certainly have it very soon if you go around the states there are plenty of towns now that have got Wi-Fi everywhere you don't need the mobile telephone carriers anymore, and if that's that's certainly where the puck's going. So that disappointed me a bit. I mean, I've, I understand. I mean, obviously that's quite a that's quite a big call to say that. But you know, to my mind, a device that does everything but the phone that they've got planned sounds very sexy. You know, I'm sitting here with a laptop on my lap, right? It's quite big and it's quite hot, and I. I'd use my PlayStation Portable, but Sony screwed that one up so royally. But they're, they're, honestly, it's a beautiful bit of technology that they just screwed down so that no one could do anything with it to make it interesting and, and grow an ecosystem around it. But, you know, if Apple had a device like that, I could be sitting here, you know, I already watch television on my iPod. It works, right? It's, it's great. Um, I could be talking to you, rather than having this big burning thing in front of me, I just have a little handheld device. You know, to me, a device like that. Now, Sony, Sony have a thing called Milo, which never really hasn't really taken off. It's got a Skype client on it. It's got a web browser on it. But Apple would do it right, and and that's what I want to see from them. I don't care about the phone bit. I don't why, why does anyone care about a phone? What what's the? Oh, I'm sorry. I don't see the excitement in phones. But I think the device looks very sexy. Just I don't give a shit about the phone bit.
0: Anyway, <laughs> it does look very sexy. Just before Christmas, I bought myself uh, a new mobile phone. It's the Dopod 838 Pro pocket PC phone, which yeah. I desperately wanted to avoid because I've had about eight pocket PCs and. Um, they, they all suck. Well, they usually end up being slow and clunky and mm. they start r- hard rebooting themselves every couple of days on me when I'm in the middle of San Francisco and haven't synchronized it for a week. But um, uh, I, I needed I, I, I made a decision that I would not buy another sort of PDA phone unless it had Wi-Fi. And this yeah. was the only one I could... So I could run Skype on it when I'm overseas. And this was yeah. the only one I could get. Can you believe that? Isn't that insane? Well, the thing that I think is oh, yeah. interesting, and I'm actually going to... I'm doing a show uh, next week, I think, with um, Russell Buckley, who um, I'm sure a lot of the listeners will know. He's sort of a, one of the leading mobile phone bloggers out there based in Joy Mini. Um, I think... Uh, Russell Russell Buckley? <laughs> I'm terrible with names tonight. Yeah, Russell Buckley. Um so we're going to be talking about mobile form factors and where they're going in a lot more detail. But, you know, it was, uh, when I was in uh, the U.S. late last year for the Digital Hollywood Conference, uh, somebody made a really interesting point uh, about this end game that's about to be played out between the handset manufacturers who are obviously looking at Apple and the iPod revenues and going, shit, you know, we, we want some of that, particularly companies like Sony, who used to have this thing called a Walkman, screwed the p- anyway we won't talk about Sony oh, well. I've got stuff on my blog about Sony but they uh, are <laughs> well yeah what a fucking debacle but anyway and then exactly. <laughs> if, you're, if you're Motorola and Sony Ericsson and Nokia you've got to be looking at Apple and the iPhone going shit we can't let that happen now if Apple had actually put Wi-Fi in they'd probably be more of an issue well, they do. No,
1: no. iPhone's got Wi-Fi. Oh, it's got
0: Wi-Fi, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's got Wi-Fi. That's right. Doesn't doesn't it doesn't have 3G. Yeah. Who gives a shit? Well, I think, <laughs> you know? I think that's a bit... I think you're a bit ahead of the curve, dude, because...
1: Uh, <laughs> well, I haven't got a 3G phone. Well, I do, but I never use it because I don't know what they're going to charge me
0: for. it. Yeah, they're going to charge you a fucking... The, the, well, I exactly. Just, well, my 3, this new 3 phone, I actually just signed up for the flat rate data plan for oh, yeah. a month, which I had on my 3 NetConnect card anyway. I love this. So I rang up 3 the other day and I said, look... I got a Net Connect card with you, my laptop 3G card on a flat monthly plan. I've got uh, a new Three mobile phone with obviously data on it. I want to just combine the two devices into one plan, so I pay thirty bucks a month for data from Three. Doesn't matter what device I use; they're both under my yeah. name. Just bundle it together. Nah, we can't do that, sir. Why not? Sorry, I can't do it. Uh, why not? It's impossible. Okay, do you guys have the same computers I have? Because, like, computers are pretty smart, like, these days, you know, and they can do really amazing things. I said, so wait, really what you're telling me is you could do it, you just don't give a shit. And the guy... Oh, well, that, yeah, exactly.
1: I mean, look, the state of Wi-Fi and mobile portable, portability and all that stuff in Australia is...
0: Pathetic. Anyway, no, no, no. it's absolutely. End, pathetic. end run, getting back to the end run. So, these yeah. the handset yeah. manufacturers are going to be going, well, we need to put Wi Fi and VoIP accessibility onto our handsets. But the telcos. The, carrier the carriers are going. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, apparently, this is a real story. I think it was the Nokia E61, which was launched in the UK with Wi Fi. When it was launched by Verizon, I think, in the U.S. Yeah, they took the Wi-Fi out. They took the Wi-Fi out. Yeah. So it's going to be an interesting, uh, you know, five years ahead of us where that sort of plays itself out. I can't wait to Did see Did
1: you it. see, sort of in, in a similar vein, there's something on a car at the moment. What's the big sort of love? And I saw a story, I'll just see if I can whip it up. I'm not sure I'll be able to find it. But the basic, the basic premise was it was an absolute shit fight between... The 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 kind of RIAA RIA guys and the handset kind of consortium and the RIAA guys the, sort of basically saying the handset guys well you want everything to be free so you can serve more handsets it, it apparently turned into a great bun fight I, I thought I read on Slashdot today it's, it's a story that's running around at the moment it should be something to check out some of the quotes on there, it was an absolute public fist fight. Over And then the guy, the, uh, the, one of the handset consortium guys turned around and says, look, the reason why people think you're evil, I think you use that very term, is because you're sort little old grannies and stuff. So it's very interesting, as you point out, there's, there's these tensions between the comment owners, between the handset guys, between the carriers. I mean, you've got the whole net neutrality thing happening in the States where the carriers are trying to tax, you know, even more bits. Uh, than one, you know, So there's a lot of fighting over kind of, Artificial, creating artificial scarcity, I think. And I think the really smart players here at Google, who in the meantime are buying up a whole lot of dark fibre, they're building amazing data centres, and uh, they seem to be reasonably good guys as well, in the sense that I think the outcomes they want, they're smart enough to realise that they'll make more money on being generous than they will out of being tight. Whereas I think... Hollywood and, uh, and uh, the content owners and all these other people tend to feel that if they're not tight, they won't make any money.
0: Yeah, I, the big disappointment for me being an ex microsoft in all of this is that Microsoft isn't doing more to take us into the new world. They've got the footprint. They've got the money. You know, the, the Zoom is such a clusterfuck that, you know, I can <laughs> barely believe it. And the Pocket PC is similar, you know. they uh, Well, and that's been around a decade, you know. They've had time to fix it up. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, they they started behind the eight ball with Palm and they sort of caught up to Palm and BlackBerry and these guys. And their market mm. share, I think, is relatively reasonable now. But it, it's still not, you know, and it, it's still a disgrace that we should all look at the iPhone and go, ooh, it is amazing after 15 years of mobile devices or portable devices like that yeah. that no one's
1: come out with anything that anyone actually likes
0: yeah, until now. Exactly. You know, Nothing geez. that's exciting, you know. And, no. uh, you know, Microsoft, again, has the footprint to really do, you know, something like iTunes. They could have done music distribution. I mean, I think there's a lot of problems with the DRM and iTunes and that kind of stuff For as sure. well, but it's uh, Apple did it better than anyone's ever done it. Microsoft could have done video, but YouTube had to come along and do video. I mean, there's so many things that Microsoft has the footprint and the people and the reach and the wherewithal to do in terms of really taking our experience of technology to the next era. And they're just dropping the ball left, right and center. And uh, it's a shame. Yeah, well... Thank God for Google, man.
1: Go on, well, Google, see, you know, yeah, but then again, they had to buy YouTube. They couldn't, you know, make it work so for themselves.
0: Well, they had to, and and actually did.
1: <laughs> well, that's true too, though, and they did it in a smart way. They got all the content owners on board, it would seem, by uh, offering them lots of money. And uh, yeah, so they, they seem pretty smart. Google. It's right to be seen now that they're so big whether they can keep all the balls in the air. And I think actually think that's part of the problem Microsoft have. Look what Jobs did when he came back to Apple ten years ago. He got rid of all like the printer lines, the the the, the, the they had digital cameras. They basically cut radically cut back what they did to just Macs, and he's extended that since then. But I guess. You know, they really have a razor-sharp focus, and they all interoperate very nicely, you know. The Mac runs iTunes, and then you plug your iPod into it. i got a new video iPod for my wife for Christmas to get all the baby videos on, and I plugged it in, and it had done all the syncing before I even... I thought, oh, now I'm going to have to sync. It's like it had done it. It... It just worked. And I think it's because they, they have so few balls they can do all these tricks and you know only juggling three or four balls. Well what's Microsoft juggling? How many different platforms? And on top of that, they don't own they don't control the hardware. They come up with specs or work with the manufacturers, but at the end of the day, their software has to run on an almost unlimited number of, of, of permutations, combinations of different hardware. And, look, uh, you know, for a long time people thought all the Apple approach and having this sort of vertical, we, we create the whole widget thing was, was, was crippling. But in fact, there seems to be a limiting factor in how far you can go, uh, in terms of, you know, supporting, you know, an almost limitless number of drivers and cards and bits and bobs that Microsoft's kind of approach has gotten. And, and it's continuing. I mean, that's what, all of a sudden they've got Zoom and it's just a box that they own the hardware, they own the software, they, you know, They've actually gone down the Apple path now with Zoom, and that, that's an interesting kind of kind of admission, I think. Well, they also
0: they also did that with the Xbox, but I, I
1: true, and the Xbox is yeah, that's very true. I, I like
0: the uh, stuff that's out in tech Meme today, though, about uh, that the story going, which is obviously not a surprise to anyone, but uh, how uh, some Microsoft uh, senior execs were kind of quoted as saying, "Well, we had to do the Zoom hardware ourselves because our Hardware partners in this space suck. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there you go. Well, I mean, I think Origami pretty much showed that. Didn't it? Anyway, less of the Origami the better.
0: Yeah. Now um, that's the end of the technology part of the show. Let's talk. Okay. Let's talk religion and science. Good. My other major theme for the show at the moment. Where, where do you stand on matters of uh, religion, John? Um. Oh. Raised in a good Catholic family, we are Raised in Stirling. a good Catholic
1: family. Uh, I'm afraid I, I'm a child of the Enlightenment and, uh, and reason, and I, I'm a kind of card-carrying reader of uh, the God delusion and so forth. I, I, I see... Uh, it's an interesting subject, and when you, have, when you have kids, I guess it brings it home, because it's one thing to have your own opinions and, and, and we're strong as they are, which I do, I guess you, I think with kids, you suddenly realise, well, you have to bring them up in the world as it is. And so you perhaps, you know, step down a bit from your sort of extremist points. Not not so much you, you change what you think, but I, I think you get more, I try and understand what religion's about. And, and I, you know, it's obviously a very powerful and strong force in almost all human societies as they are understood. And, and I think Dawkins has a reasonably good, you know, thesis that we've essentially evolved religion as a mechanism to um, to manage all sorts of things about our, our individual... So- well, he did, I'm sort of extrapolating what he says, but I think we've evolved these mechanisms to deal with loss and grief. Uh, you know, like, it, if, heaven forbid, you know, anything happened to my daughter, I don't, I don't imagine I could... I don't imagine... The only thing that could... And I was talking about this with my wife. Just recently, you can see where religion is this power. If you have this idea, they're somewhere else, and you may see them again, or even if they're somewhere else, or there's something beyond this, just this plane. You, you can see how it's, it, it helps us cope with the tragedies that will certainly befall all of us of one kind or another. So I, I think we've evolved religion to help us cope as individuals. Uh, certainly, belief. I think we have evolved belief in things like you know the afterlife, and I remember reading for the first time years ago about. Um, it's in some dispute, but i like to believe that it's true that they discovered a Neanderthal uh, burial site of a, of a young girl or a young female and it was clearly uh, she'd been buried with great reverence and with symbols of, of flowers and fertility and life and the idea that even Neanderthals, who were a different species to us, had evolved and developed a belief in the afterlife and a a, a cherishing of life was a very moving thing. So I I think there's great power in belief, and I think there's great power in religion. I just happen not to believe that that is a function of there being a god and an afterlife and things like that, which may or may not sound like an each-way bet or or whatever, but what I I guess I'm trying to say is I can see... I can see the, the beauty and, and the strength and the reason for belief and for religion. It's just my reason also lets me see that and so kind of in a sense frees me from, you know, what is probably a pre-enlightenment thing in a way. So is that, how's it go? <laughs> how's that work? You're very quiet over there. <sighs>
0: you haven't listened to my show at all in the last couple of weeks, have you? No,
1: I haven't, I must say. The terrible and it's the beauty of podcasting. I can go and listen to all at once so you have no I-, I probably just said what
0: it You have no idea I- what's coming next. You don't know if you've completely offended me or if I'm on board with you or if I'm somewhere in the middle.
1: No, I have absolutely no idea. But you're... <laughs> y- 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 no, I have absolutely no idea.
0: That's good. I was wondering where we were going to get to, because, um, listeners, before the show, just a couple of seconds before we started, I turned on the recorder, I said to John, listen, um you know, we might do technology for all them. We might move on to religion and politics. You're comfortable with that? And he said something like, "Well, I am, but I'm not sure if you're going to be." You know, and I was like, "Ooh, great! We might get a big stand-up fight, mate." I've been thumping the table about uh, the how great Dawkins is for the last couple of weeks. <laughs> oh, and, dear, uh, I mean. I'm, I'm halfway through God Delusion. I've, oh, all right. Man. So oh, I, well. I've been debating. We can pack it up now. <laughs> <laughs> I've been debating uh, Christians and uh, the. The irrationality of religion on the show for the last couple of weeks tomorrow morning actually um, I'm doing an interesting interview with an Aussie guy called John Dixon who is a biblical historian Christian biblical historian who's going to come on and argue the uh, merits of the uh, New Testament and the historicity of the historical evidence for Jesus and for the New Testament so that should be a lot of fun
1: but, yeah, I mean, from what I am aware, it's all completely nonsense. But yeah. anyway, and he may have evidence for it, so that's you know that's interesting. I've
0: read but, I've read his book actually, and uh, you know, I think the evidence at the end of the day comes down to the fact that well, we just believe it's true. Yeah. Therefore, it must be. Um, so the reason, the thing I wanted to get onto here uh, hmm. was uh, the bit in Dawkins' book. And I've had a few listeners send me emails say, look, can you tell us a little bit more about what's in Dawkins' book and what you're reading about and go into a little bit more detail. And I don't sort of feel that it's worthwhile reviewing the book because there's a million places you can review um, yeah. the Just to say that I think it's mandatory reading. And, uh, you know, it's something that I hope will end up in the school curriculum in the not-too-distant future. But um, I can't sit in uh, the American school curriculum, but... Yeah, but, uh, well, you know, that's...
1: To me, that's... well, what the, I, Maybe they'll sell it at the Grand Canyon or something, I don't know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Just before they push the atheists off the edge into the pits well, of boiling big, oil.
1: There's a big debate in the Grand Canyon bookstore because... They're selling book. It's a it's run by the national parks or whatever the equivalent in the U.S. And they're selling books that sort of promote uh, creationism and and all the science based people who obviously the national parks is, is still science based in America. Um, are kind of look. We can't sell these books. So there's been a bit of a that's that was my that's why I kind of mentioned that particular one. It's been floating around for a little while, but. Uh,
0: uh-huh. Yeah. Well, you know, it's uh, I, I, like you. I was raised a Catholic and went to went to Sunday school, went to church every weekend until I was about, I think I was about twelve. I, I, all right, I you
1: got you got out about seven years earlier. I mean,
0: uh... Yeah, yeah. I, I, I distinctly remember riding my bike to church one morning, sitting there and listening to the father, the priest, talk about original sin and how we were all born as sinners. And just sitting there at the age, whatever it was, it was something like 12, and going, that just makes no sense whatsoever. And walked out and never came back. I remember riding my bike home that morning going, that's it. I'm just not going back. Uh, That's just just ridiculous. But the, and I've, so I've been, you know, um, a confirmed, and then I studied science through school and, and and obviously all started to make sense. But, and I also studied a lot of Eastern myth- uh, philosophies and mythologies, and mythology from all over the world. Joseph Campbell, who I mentioned on the show recently, and uh, Greek and Roman mythologies. But the thing that's changed for me recently, after you know he- hearing Dawkins and guys like Sam Harris talk, is the recognition that there—it's now the time where we need to. Bring the rest of the human race with us as much as we can. I mean, I think science has had this detente with religion for the last two hundred years, and uh, it's time that you know that that the gloves come off. Well, yeah, the philosophy of live and let live has to stop. We it's time for the human race to become a lot more rational because religion is just. For, for all of the um, benefits, which are dubious, I think, I think being deluded is always... Uh, finding yeah soul lace in delusion is something that we don't tolerate with people, generally speaking. I mean, if people walk around and say, well, you know, uh, I'm Napoleon Bonaparte, and they absolutely believe it, even if it makes them feel good, we kind we of... generally medicate them, Yeah, but. we generally lock them up. or or medicate them or send them to a shrink for their own benefit for their own safety because we understand that it is they're dangerous to themselves and to other people if they're getting around in a completely deluded state and it's the same thing with People who are believing in these sorts of mythologies, I think, and it's also bad for the human race. And so, I don't think it's very good for the planet.
1: I don't, you know, exactly, it seems to be. You know, if you believe in an afterlife, then it really doesn't really matter what you do to the planet right now. And, and it does seem that there's a rather unholy or holy alliance between um, between the sort of climate change skeptics and some particularly extreme conservative religious groups in the US. Um, there seems to be all sorts of interesting correlations there at the right, at the fringes of the Republican Party and probably, you know, far to the right of it, so.
0: Well, you know, the interesting stats that Dawkins puts forward in the book is that I think 90% of Americans, uh, when surveyed in a census, claim to believe in a personal God. Hmm. But interestingly, only, I think it's, 3% or it might be as high as 7% of uh, members of the National Academy of Sciences uh, believe in a personal God and only something like 3% of the members of Mensa claim to believe in a personal God. So,
1: Well Dawkins sort of makes the point that there's almost a strong correlation between your level of education and intelligence and whether or not you believe in God.
0: Certainly IQ and and whether you believe in God. But one of the interesting things I wanted to talk about tonight uh, that I was reading last night in the book is Lee Smolin's theory of the fecund universes. Do you remember this bit?
1: I'm not sure. I'm not sure I've got up to that bit to tell the truth. there, I read it when I have those minutes to, to the. Is it somewhere toward the back as Lee might say?
0: No, it's it? about halfway through. Was it? Yeah, oh, which is so cool. all I'm up to. So uh, this is a segment oh. of the show where I basically just read from Wikipedia. It's called right. Everything You Need to Know About. And if I had theme music, I would insert it here, but I don't. Now, Lee Smolin, S-M-O-L-I-N, uh, born in New York City. He's an American theoretical physicist. If you want the Wikipedia link, I can just IM it to you, mate. That's all
1: right. <laughs> I've actually got a, I've got the result here. Oh,
0: there you, you go. Whip, whip
1: Google ass. is... Uh,
0: Google's amazing. You're running the Googlepedia plugin for Firefox. No, uh, I don't even know that one. I'll have to look. Googlepedia it, it automatically. When you do a Google search, it the left hand side of the page is the Google results. The right hand side of the page is the Wikipedia result. Cool. Very cool. Anyway, he's a theoretical physicist who's made major contributions to loop quantum gravity. Educated at Hampshire College and Harvard University. After teaching at Harvard for a number of years, he took up his current position as a researcher at the Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics and an adjunct professor of physics at the University of Waterloo. Boo hiss because it's named after the place where Napoleon was defeated and everyone who listens to this show knows how I feel about Napoleon. Great guy. Now, this is the thing that really uh, amazed me when I was reading about this last night. I'd never heard of this before. Smolin's most famous suggestion may be his theory of fecund universes, also known as cosmological natural selection which attempts to apply principles of biological evolution to cosmology, suggesting that universes evolve in favor of the production of black holes. Now, I drilled down into this in the uh, Wikipedia entry of Fecund Universes. It says, The Fecund Universes' theory of cosmology, advanced by Lee Smolin, suggests that the rules of biology apply on the grandest scales. In this view, a collapsing black hole causes the emergence of a new universe on the other side, whose fundamental constant parameters, speed of light, Planck length, and so forth, may differ slightly from those of the universe where the black hole collapsed. Each universe, therefore, gives rise to as many new universes as it has black holes. Thus, the theory contains the evolutionary ideas of reproduction and mutation of universes, but has no analogue of of natural selection. If this theory is correct, the odds strongly favor this universe, the, i.e., our universe being not the first to ever exist but a descendant of many that have existed through time and since a universe with conditions favouring production of many child universes, i.e. favouring black hole creation would have many more children than one that did not it is reasonable to expect a late universe to have evolved towards conditions favouring black holes Uh, It has its critics who claim the theory is not falsifiable and therefore unscientific By definition, existence of other universes cannot be verified by scientific tools working within the time, space, and physics laws of our universe. Smolin's counter-argument is that an observation of very many black holes in the known universe would be evidence for this view, while if black holes are rare or unusual, it would be quite strong evidence against, and obviously we have a lot of black holes. But, um, you know, I would suggest that it may be not falsifiable today, because we don't have the scientific tools today, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we won't have in the future. I can't imagine what predictions you
1: could make in order for it, you know, that might end up being false. But then again, I'm not a theoretical particle physicist. (laughs) You're not? uh, No. Damn! I only studied studied a few years of physics at university very badly. I was more a pure maths person, at which I wasn't very good either, but anyway. Um... It's an interesting one, but you know, in a way, to, some, to a great many people, including a lot of scientists, people would think that he's almost as kind of faith based. Like, is this almost faith based in itself? And I guess it, it turns on the question of whether or not it's scientific. Because if it's not scientific, it's like that sort of, you know, those ideas, the cosmological ideas that every atom, or every electron, or every quark, or whatever, is actually a universe itself, and, and inside that universe, which is maybe a lovely idea, but it's completely untestable.
0: Well, speaking about quantum mechanics, actually, Smolin apparently is not a big fan of quantum mechanics. Um, in his 2006 book, *The Trouble with Physics*, which I haven't read yet, but I definitely am going to get. He's apparently strongly critical of string theory, and he's not alone. Oh, he's not alone, <laughs> <laughs> But Leonard Susskind uh, is a big fan of his cosmic landscape theory, so there you go. But um, there's a quote here from his book where he says, "'I am convinced that quantum mechanics is not a final theory. I believe this because I've never encountered an interpretation of the present formulation of quantum mechanics that makes sense to me. I've studied most of them in depth and thought hard about them, and in the end I still can't make real sense of quantum theory as it stands.'" I mean, who can? But uh, what's the famous theory? There's only three or four people in the world that understand quantum theory. Oh, no, what, what a... Pla- Streaming theory, is it? Well, I think Planck said that if you think you understand quantum theory, you don't. Uh, <laughs> it was Planck or Bohr or one of those guys. But anyway, I just love that. I love the idea of... Uh, it's a lovely idea, isn't it? Yeah. It, I don't know that you could accuse him of being faith-based, because I'm not sure that he is... Uh, Saying that this is absolutely how it is. No, no,
1: no. He is proposing something that he think may be a theory. Yes, that's certainly true. So in that sense, he's not being scientific. And it's an interesting idea. And I think we should. You know, who was it who said the universe is not only was it Einstein? Was it not only stranger than we know? It's stranger than we can know.
0: Ooh, I like that one. Um. I was also going to get into, just before we finish tonight, a little bit of politics. There was some news that I blogged today. I don't know. It's kind of politics. Qantas. Mm. Qantas has banned a passenger from boarding one of their planes in Melbourne because he insisted on wearing a T-shirt which says, George Bush, world's number one terrorist. Right. Right. Uh, Qantas uh, wouldn't let him wear it. He's, he's a British resident, IT guy. They wouldn't let him wear it from London to Melbourne. Now he's returning. They wouldn't let him wear it on the way back, and he has refused to board the plane unless they let him wear this shirt. And they are refusing to let him board the plane wearing the shirt. Now, their excuse is that it would create a security issue. Oh, no, yes. 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 And uh, that it would offend passengers. Now, All right. uh, I don't know. Well, what's your take on this? I blogged about it today and said, look, I, I think um, Quantum's over uh, quantum? quantum, is overstepping the boundaries here. Uh, what do you think?
1: Well, there actually was an instance not dissimilar to this in the United States in the middle of last year, where someone was simply wearing a shirt with Arabic on it, and it actually, they insisted it said, "I am a terrorist"
0: in Arabic. <laughs> No, well, actually, I no, just it said, it said I am, something in there. It said, I am not a terrorist in Arabic. Quite possibly. It certainly
1: said... Uh, I, I can't remember. What, I think in and of itself, it, that, that wasn't, the issue wasn't what it said, because, of course, no one could read it. But the, the, it was said that he was a security risk and he had to take it off. And eventually he did take it off and they let him get on the plane. It's like, the simple wearing of a T-shirt makes you a security risk these days? I I, don't, I, I mean, OK, I think there are two aspects to this. I think mean, there's the, the whole paranoia about security, and I actually myself blogged about this some um, a few weeks ago when it was the instance of the biological agent in Parliament House in Canberra. And there were, you yeah, know, it was actually during recess or something, so there weren't many politicians there anyway, but, you know, there were fire engines there and hazard response groups and things like that. And it seemed to be a very interesting moment where it was the first time really in Australia that all the sort of Insecurity was visited upon the people who, kind of, whose job it is to to stop us feeling insecure. politicians, and and it reminded me of a story my father told me. He was a pharmacist and he um, had a pharmacy, and he was you know they part of a methadone program, and he was held up on more than one occasion. At one time with a well, probably more than once, but once with a gun, and he talked about not long after where something happened. It was like a puff of smoke or something in his pharmacy. There might have been like you know some steam, or and he really reacts to it. it, just made him sort of like he called it jumping at shadows. And, and this episode in Canberra kind of really made me think, well, you know, we're starting to we see shadows everywhere. But we've almost become kind of hypersensitized with everything. And this this is one example of it. Rather than diffusing, like taking the opportunity to to take the hypersensitization down a notch, we sort of ratchet it up. So there's that whole kind of psychology. Of fear, which, you know, some people argue that it's been deliberately done by politicians to garner. I don't actually believe that. I tend to think it's more opportunistic in an unconscious sense. Uh, in the way that politicians seem to love wars and all those kind of things as well. I don't think they necessarily love them in a conscious sense. I think they tend to have this instinctive feeling that when there's insecurity and when there's a sense of kind of, you know, the need for protection, then, then leaders can step up and, and do well. Anyway, so there's that whole thing. And I think we really have to address that as a civilization, and certainly as a country and stop, frankly, being quite so sensitive because, of course, if a little bit of flour getting delivered to an embassy is something we call a biological agent and get, you know, very excited about what happens when something really goes wrong, All right? So, how do we respond to that? So, there's that part. And the second the, part the is... The boy
0: who cried wolf theorem. Well, exactly.
1: I mean, we've been telling, you know, fables about it for a very long time. You know, when it actually does, something does happen, people aren't even going to believe it anymore. I mean, have we pushed it past the, the level of critics. I don't know. So, that, that's one thing that it brings to mind instantly. Um, that whole psychology that I really think as a society we have to deal with and I think we need leaders who stand up and say, now, look, it's not to say that we don't have you know, very severe threats that we face and it's not to say that there isn't a reality that we could face you know, certain attacks, but we have to put that in the context of how you know, how much more likely it is that we're going to be killed by a stone falling on our, off our, out on our head. You know? like if you look at the statistics of it, being killed in a terrorist attack are pretty low in the scheme of things. So maybe we overreact to some extent anyway. And I think it requires leadership to contextualise that rather than overreacting to every little thing like a guy wearing a shirt. And now he's taking the shirt off, it's okay. He's not a security risk anymore. The only argument I could see is that if someone's willing to do that, they must be a security risk. And whether or not they're wearing the T-shirt, they're a security risk anyway. All right. But the second part of it, I think, is a very slippery slope. It's a form of censorship of, of someone's speech. And traditionally, even governments have had constraints on uh, how they can they can censor people's speech. Now, in Australia, we don't really have any rights. It's arguable that there is some limited freedom of political speech, you know, theophanus or whatever in the High Court about 10 or 12 years ago. However, we certainly, I don't think, want... You know, surf clubs or churches or quarters or you know BHP being the ones who make decisions about what's appropriate speech or not. If we're going to make those decisions, then I don't. I don't think. I think there are appropriate speech acts, and there are probably inappropriate ones, and that's based on on, on you know like the whole debate in Sydney the moment about whether or not. uh, The big day out should allow uh, flags, the Australian flag to be used. I don't know if you've come across that or any of your readers have, but last year uh, in the aftermath of some really unfortunate behaviour (laughs) at a place that I can see across the river from where I live in Cronulla um, in the months after that, the Australian flag became a bit of a rallying point for you know, reasonably redneck attitudes about immigration and, so, and multiculturalism in Australia, and they all seem to come to a head at The Big Day Out, which for non-Australian listeners is a big concert in Australia that gets international acts and local acts and things like that. And I know from firsthand and through, you know, all sorts of ways that there were more, you know, more than isolated instances of violence of people going up to others and saying, here's the Australian flag, and if they kiss it or venerate it in some way, actually physically assaulting them. So, you know, again, like there's this whole debate we're having now about who has the right or who should have the right and the power to curtail speech acts. And frankly, I don't think Qantas should. Nor do I think my surf club should. Nor do I think that my church should, if I believe, you know, nor, you know, and I think even governments should be very wary about doing it. So, again, you realize I, I'm very long winded in my answers. But so I see there are two very distinct things here that are very interesting. And I, I think Qantas is dig, dig, digging a deep hole for itself because what happens if someone says something equally offensive about someone who isn't quite, you know, like as right-wing, do, are they going to care less? Uh, you know, how, how is it, have they got a person whose job it is to make these decisions and they have a set of guidelines and criteria that uh, they, they objectively use? Do they, they get the censorship panel? to rate t-shirts and you know you had MA rated t-shirts and R rated t-shirts and things like that
0: it's probably so someone has a, it's probably one of those people with the really big brains who operate the uh, x-ray machines that you're going through I mean those oh, yeah, those, yeah, those, yeah. those Nobel prize winning rocket scientists that they uh, get to do that job
1: and, but it, and it actually is what happens is that the responsibility devolves to the lowest level and people make risks assessment I'll tell you you have know, a funny story about a very famous web designer yeah involving airports yeah Douglas Bowman, who I've mentioned before, and if you, you know, he's a fabulous web designer, and uh, he came out and spoke at our first conference, and he was um, he was going over to New Zealand to, to do a bit of travelling around, and we both love snowboarding. He said, well, you want to come? So, you know, it was fantastic. So I met him. Up, and when I got to the airport in New Zealand. I was coming from Sydney. He was coming from Brisbane, and I, he was on a midnight plane or something. So eventually he gets off the plane, and I, he said, oh, I, you, mate, I almost didn't make it. What happened? He said, well, I was putting my backpack back on after I'd been through the X-ray and I had my elbow up, and one of the security guards walked directly into it and knocked himself out. And the next thing he knew, he was being dragged, physically, <laughs> like basically being arrested, and and the, for having bashed this guy out because no one actually saw it happen. And and it was only that they viewed the security tapes and 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 that verified his story that he didn't attack the guy. The guy literally walked into his elbow, and and so but the, the, of course. Imagine if there were no security tar- there's no uh, corroborating evidence there.
0: The guy would you be in imagine- Guantanamo Bay, as well, we speak. Quite,
1: quite possibly, you know. I think, and that's, again, you know, one of the great dangers where when we overreact to everything, that every little accident could potentially become something that has meaning in it, that, that has significance in it. And, of course, you know, something happens and a newspaper gets hold of it in a climate of excitement about, you know, whatever it happens to be, and, you, you know, then you've got half Australia thinks you... You know, the dingo did it, and the other half... You know, like, we're like that as Australia. Half them think Chappelle did it, the other half did Half them think the dingo did, the other half did You know, half them think David Hicks did, the other half did We actually have no fucking idea about any of those things, by the way. But we've got this great national character. Anyway, I've, done, I've gone on too much. I've gone too far. I've started my... That's my Schrodinger's cat, you see. Until you open the newspaper, you don't know if you... If, if you think David Hicks did it or not right? but once you open it and you say John Howe thinks David Hicks did it no way or, or vice versa you know like it's it's, it's my, the Schrodinger
0: yeah. my next door neighbours who, who's a, a geek um, has actually got a t-shirt that I think he bought off of Think Geek which has Schrodinger's cat is dead written on the front and Schrödinger's <laughs> cat is alive written on the back. That's good.
1: Yeah, I love those good, good, good t-shirts. There's like, there's only 10 kind of people. So here's those my... stand binary, those are dead. Here's, anyway, here's
0: my challenge to the entire audience, no matter where in this grand, hot, climate-changing world of ours you live in... Oh, now that'd be two of them, right? Get, get, a, get a t-shirt with Bush number one terrorist on it and wear it on every flight that you take for the next 12 months. Let's see how many people they can stop from wearing these T-shirts before we start to overwhelm their ability to stop people flying. To me, as I said in the blog today, okay, if today they're stopping you from boarding a plane because you've got that T-shirt on, what's next? You turn to the passenger next to you on the plane and say, hey, I think George Bush is a terrorist. What, can you get arrested? Can you get charged? Can you get thrown off the plane? Uh, You know, it's a slippery slope, as John said. Absolutely. Where do you draw the line? Now, Yeah, I'm sure that some of you can sit there and think that we're being alarmist or that we're conspiracy theorists, but really, I mean, that's, you know, that's what Neville Chamberlain said uh, after Hitler invaded Czechoslovakia. Oh, I've got to tell you a funny story, which was not funny. I told my wife this and she just absolutely did a nut at me but i was talking with somebody in berlin the other day so i'm doing a contract with a german company and they had this clause that they this contract they wanted me to sign i had a clause in it that said that nothing in tpn podcasts will be immoral and i said to this girl in berlin i was talking to her on skype the next day and i said i'm not really sure what you mean by immoral i mean I don't understand what are German morals. I mean, is it okay to invade another country as long as they come up with some sort of weak ass excuse a couple of weeks beforehand? Uh, <laughs> I thought it was funny, and my wife said to me, "I can't believe you said that." Do you understand how sensitive Germans are to that? And I was like, "Well, yeah, it's time they like, should have invaded Poland. In. <laughs> it's time they got over it." Exactly. <laughs> All right, John Alsop. Well, uh, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you, you very, very much, much for Cameron. coming on the show, mate.
1: Good luck. Hopefully we'll see. You. Thank you. I hope you see your web Directions later in the year.
0: Look forward to it, mate. Cheers.
1: Fantastic. Cheers, mate.